My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Steve Baird. When it comes to mainstream conversation about migration and migrants, we live in a moment that even a few months ago would have been hard to imagine. The worst refugee crisis since the Second World War, a heart-rending photograph of a dead refugee child that has shocked consciences and inspired action around the world, and in the Canadian context, a federal election in which the incumbent government's changes to the country's immigration regime have been extensive and appalling, have all combined to open up a considerable amount of space to talk about the issue. Mainstream conversations have included, often shallowly but nonetheless genuinely, some consideration of the harsh circumstances that prompt refugees and many other migrants to leave their homes, the sorts of hardships that many migrants from countries of the Global South are forced to undergo, and some consideration of what our obligations might be to our fellow human beings. There has even been some significant pushback against government attempts to claim that the vastly inadequate Canadian state response to the current refugee crisis has somehow been generous. Despite all of this, what has so far been lacking in mainstream conversation is a thorough reckoning with the totality of the violence that has built into the Canadian immigration regime. Though there are groups attempting to draw attention to this deeply troubling hole, and I would encourage listeners to check out neverhome.ca for an excellent website with very solid information and analysis, today's show focuses more narrowly on a group fighting just one of the many, many ways that the lives of migrants to Canada are organized into suffering and harm by the Canadian state. Steve Baird is an organizer with the collective Education Across Borders, which is part of the broader Solidarity Across Borders Migrant Justice Network in Montreal. In Quebec, as in many other provinces in Canada, but in contrast with most European countries and the United States, the government puts significant barriers in the ways of the children of undocumented migrants, migrants who do not have immigration status in Canada, from going to school. Quebec school boards demand extensive documentation from people to prove their status, and even this can be a huge barrier to folks who are concerned about deportation. And from people who do not have status, they then demand payments of thousands of dollars per child before they will allow the children to attend school. Thousands of dollars that many refugees and other migrants simply don't have. Education Across Borders has been working for several years both to support individual migrant families in getting access to schooling for their kids, and to bring public pressure to bear on the Quebec government to give undocumented children access to basic education. Baird speaks with me about the barriers placed in the way of migrant children, and about the work that Education Across Borders has been doing to challenge those barriers. We spoke by Skype to phone from Montreal. My name is Steve Baird. I have been living in Montreal for a number of years. I'm originally from New Brunswick, but most of the time since 2001, I've been here on Haudenosaunee land, a local Kenyan Kahaka or Mohawk nation up here in Montreal, and I've been involved in the education collective for a few years. 
The Education Collective is a collective that's existed for about four years in Montreal and is a part of Solidarity Across Borders, which is a migrant justice network in the city. Solidarity Across Borders, I guess, does similar work to what known as illegal groups do in some other cities, although there isn't any formal relationship between the groups necessarily. And the Education Collective, we've been working on access to schools for kids who are undocumented in Quebec. When people try to register their kids for school, if they don't already have citizenship or residency or something, they're asked to show all their immigration papers and prove their status. And if they can't prove their status, they're told that, well, you can register, but you'll have to pay something like five to $7,000 per year. And so families without status who know that they can't prove their status and likely can't come up with that kind of money, sometimes will just stop right there in the registration process. That's the general situation. There are some families that manage to get through. There's some case-by-case exceptions. But even at the level of, in in Quebec, registrations are handled, if not by the school, then by the school boards. The school boards in Quebec actually have quite extensive administrative roles and powers. But even when you go to the school boards and you talk to someone there who is responsible for registration, often they may not even be entirely aware of what does it mean to not have status. They may not be aware of all of the possible exceptions or ways that they can treat those situations. And so we've managed over the years to find ways of registering students. When we find out about a kid who needs to be registered for school, usually we can figure out a way with the school board to make sure that they get in. But for a lot of families, what they hear is that they need to prove their immigration status or pay thousands of dollars. And for a lot of them, they end up out of school. In the U.S., there's guaranteed education for anyone who's without status. And my understanding is it's fairly well understood across the board in whatever state you're in that kids can go to school, that that is not generally much of a problem. In most European countries, it's not a problem. Kids can go to school regardless of what their immigration status is. In Canada, though, generally what they do is they try to get people to prove their immigration status or they, you know, bill them this money. In Ontario, there was legislation that happened in the 90s that guarantees access to school for people who are undocumented, although it's complicated and I don't actually know the nuances of just how good or bad the situation is. And my understanding is in BC as well that people have managed to win access on some level, but I know even less about the BC example and what it really looks like on the ground and how imperfect it might be. And in other Canadian provinces, they more or less say no most of the time or, you know, say that you have to pay. What's your sense of how many undocumented people live in Quebec and how many kids this problem affects? It's hard to say because, of course, people who are undocumented don't want to report their official information for statistical purposes or anything. But there are a number of ways that we have a pretty good idea of what's going on. In Quebec, the ombudsperson released a report on the subject last year and estimated that it's in the hundreds and then also made a comment that suggested it was at least a thousand, according to some estimates up through the Quebec Ministry of Education. We know that there's over 20,000 cases in Quebec of people who have had a deportation order in recent years and haven't shown up for their deportation date. And so you can kind of extrapolate and say that within Montreal, you're probably talking about at least 10 or 20,000 people who are living undocumented in some way and maybe considerably more. There'd be much more in Toronto. There'd be, I'm sure, many in some other big Canadian cities, but it's hard to say just how many.
In Canada, it's mostly people who have at some point had some kind of a status. So maybe they came as tourists and overstayed their visa. Maybe they came as refugee claimants and their refugee application was turned down. And Canada's refugee process is somewhat arbitrary. There's been cases where people with very, very similar stories, sometimes even in the same family, one person gets accepted, another person gets turned down. And so people who have decided to stay... Sometimes there's people who had a work permit or a study permit or something and somehow ended up staying in the country. My impression is that the most common situation is people who applied for refugee status and were turned down. But I don't think there's actually any way to confirm that, and maybe other people would disagree with me on that. Tell me about the Education Across Borders Collective's founding and about the basics of the work that it's been doing. Solidarity Across Borders has been around for much longer and has always done a fair bit of work with families in sort of a mutual aid model, but more or less providing support to people who are facing deportations or have other needs. So through Solidarity Across Borders, we've heard about situations where people wanted to have their kids registered for school. There was a kid who wasn't in school. They were maybe at home or they were being told that they would maybe have to pay five or six or seven thousand dollars to send their kid to school. So part of it was that we had started hearing about this kind of case through the Solidarity Across Borders network. And it seemed to be a fairly pressing need. And then I think it also seemed to be something where it's so hard to justify keeping kids out of school that it seemed really like something where there's a lot of possibility to challenge that and to actually win real changes. And indeed, that's what we found over the years is that it's an issue where you can convince a lot of people and you can get a lot of people on board with a message that these kids should be able to go to school regardless of whether or not those same people what their political views might be in relation to their parents' situation or people who are undocumented or things like that. There's been a lot of potential to mobilize around this issue of kids not being able to go to school alongside other mobilizations that are happening in solidarity across borders. At first, the big challenge was that no one was talking about this issue. It just didn't exist. And when you tried to tell people that the issue did exist and that there were kids who were being denied access to schools, people in positions of power, whether in the school board or in the government, would either just totally ignore us or just say, oh, no, no, that's not a problem here. What are you talking about? So... One of the challenges has been to find ways to make it clear to people that this really is a big problem, that there's hundreds, if not thousands of kids affected, and that it really is something that needs attention. So a lot of it has been media-related work of trying to get that issue out there into the media, whether it's by sending press releases or having a little rally or different things like that. There was a collective statement that was put out early on where different organizations signed on to say that, yes, this is a problem that needs to be dealt with. But over the years, I think that what we've had the most success with in part has been that we've been able to get all of the major print media in Quebec pretty much all of the major media across the board are just about to report on this issue in a way that affirms that, yes, indeed, this is a problem. Yes, it affects lots of kids and something needs to be done about it. And the Ministry of Education and the school boards have been forced to respond and have been forced to at least a considerable extent to admit that, yes, you know, it really is a problem, even though for years they tried to say, oh, no, there's no real problem here. 
Last week, students in Quebec went back to school, and we had a rally outside of one of the school boards, and we sent out a press release before, and ended up talking to lots of media about the situation. And back to school time is probably the easiest time of year to get people to talk about this problem, because once again, students are returning to school, but there's some students who are excluded, and it's a good time for sure to get attention. We've looked at some other avenues like approaching the Quebec ombudsperson, who in the end, it wasn't actually us who approached them directly, but who eventually wrote a report on the subject. We were also for a while looking at the possibility of taking something to the Quebec Human Rights Tribunal. It's called the Commission des Droits de la Personne et de la Jeunesse, and I don't think that there's an English version of the name, but it's basically the Human Rights Commission of the province. That's been challenging because their format is that you have to have an individual who themselves has been personally wronged by this and is willing to bring the case forward. And it's hard for families who are undocumented to put themselves in that kind of a situation where they're, I mean, of course, the Human Rights Commission would be very respectful of confidentiality and all that stuff. But, you know, it's hard to find a family who really wants to go through that thing. There is actually a case that's being looked at by the Commission des Droits de la Personne in Quebec surrounding the deportation of a teenager in Montreal who was arrested in his high school almost a year ago. We've been involved in that case for a while. A lot of the details of it are public and are out there and have been talked about, but essentially the student went back to his old high school. He'd actually changed high schools not long before. And he'd already been threatened at his old high school with being denounced to immigration authorities. And when he went back on his birthday to visit his friends at his old high school, the high school called the police and the police came and immediately asked him questions about his immigration status and turned him over to Immigration Canada. So it's a somewhat shocking example of where you would think that in schools there would be some level of understanding that they need to have some kind of confidentiality and that they can't threaten students in this kind of way. But that's the fundamental problem of confidentiality is that if there isn't confidentiality and everyone knows details around someone's status and it's not handled in a confidential way, then you can have some random principal or secretary or whoever at a school say, well, I don't think this person should be here and to do something terrible like that. So this teenager who's being called Daniel is the pseudonym that everyone's using. He's currently living in Mexico in a really very difficult situation. So we've been doing support for Daniel and for his family, which has been very challenging, but they have a humanitarian and compassionate grounds application underway, which is basically one of the only avenues through which people who are undocumented or, you know, who have already exhausted the refugee claims process can regularize their status. The Education Collective has been somewhat involved. It's mostly been a somewhat separate initiative through Solidarity Cross Borders also of supporting the family and not just making the application for them to all be able to have status in Canada on humanitarian ground, but also to put pressure on the Quebec government and to some extent on the federal government to do something about the situation. Talk a little bit more about some of the risks for people without status in speaking up around their situations and around these issues. 
There are some people who are without status in some kind of temporary way or who may not even have realized that some of their papers have expired or something. But for a lot of people, they have made some really difficult major life decision where they know that their refugee application was turned down and that they have very few recourses or options and have made the really hard decision to stay in the country and to try not to be found out. And so people are living in fear that whatever life that they have built here and whatever kind of stability they're trying to create in their own lives or for their family or their children, that that could all be taken away at any moment. And so it's a very, very difficult situation in which to expect people to advocate on their own behalf or even admit what their situation is. Like we have families who we've talked to who they really want to register their kids in school, but they don't even want to tell an official from the school board that they don't have status or that they live at X or Y address because they fear that they can't trust the school board with that information, which is maybe not totally unfounded in the sense that there aren't clear policies at the school board of how that information will be handled. I mean, it theoretically should be handled in a confidential way, but our experience is that it's not always handled in a very sensitive way, and it's a real problem. It's really hard even when, even if a family is able to approach different people who know all the ins and outs of the situation and can tell them, you know, probably X and Y you can expect and can't expect and you can expect to be confidential or whatever or that you may have to tell them or you don't have to tell them. But even navigating that with all of the information about everything is extremely difficult and it's not a situation that works for families. There's a fundamental problem with that system as long as the general message that these families hear is you have to prove your immigration status or pay many thousands of dollars and otherwise you won't be able to send your kid to school. That's just not going to work for a lot of people in that kind of situation. So given that hesitation and the very real risk that underlies it, what does that mean for the way that the Education Collective approaches the relationship building that's inevitably a part of this kind of organizing? We have families approach the collective. Often it's through Solidarity Across Borders, that somehow they've heard of the Solidarity Across Borders network. There's monthly times when people can come and get help from peers and from members of the collective around their situation. And so I think over the last 10 years or so, Solidarity Across Borders has become fairly known among a lot of different people, or sometimes people will refer people to us. We've had families, for example, who, you know, they're told by the school they have to pay thousands of dollars, and then they go to some community organization, and community organization may or may not know what the situation is, and then maybe some other community organization will refer them either to Solidarity Across Borders or to the Education Collective specifically and say, oh, well, these people have some particular experience helping out people who don't have status. So sometimes that's what happens, and we're very careful about confidentiality, and also we have a very clear an open policy that we're going to support people, whatever their situation is. It doesn't matter to us what their status is or who they are or, you know, whatever. I mean, whether someone has some kind of minor criminal record either, it's not for us any kind of a grounds not to be as supportive as possible of them in their situation and giving them whatever kind of support that they need and working with them and involving them in the network and things like that. What is Education Across Borders generally able to do for undocumented folks who come to you for support? You know, usually we can get this kid registered for school. 
at these school boards where families are trying to register. We know people, we've dealt with them before, we know the different details and ins and outs. We were able in 2013 to win a slight loosening in some of the restrictions around people without status being able to register for school, where the Ministry of Education relaxed rules a little bit and, of course, declared that they solved the problem, even though they hadn't done anything near solving the problem. After maybe about a year, year and a half of public campaigning and getting it in the media and putting pressure on the government of Quebec to do something about it. We actually got a response from the Ministry of Education where the Minister of Education at the time had a press conference in late June and they said, you know, I I didn't know that this was such a problem. And of course, when I found out about it, I said, I just have to do something and we'll do something before kids go back to school in the fall. And then they did almost nothing. They made some very minor changes that leaves the dysfunctional system almost like it was before. But what they did do was they added a couple of categories. So it helps clinics and collectives like us who deal with these situations frequently to find these obscure case-by-case ways of helping families. But it didn't actually do much to change the general situation or to solve the problem where families still get told that they have to show their immigration papers or pay. Anyways, we're able to work in these totally inadequate case-by-case ways, but if you really know all the ins and outs of it, that us or a social worker who has some experience with this can manage usually to get kids signed up. What kinds of demands does your collective have in terms of changes that you're seeking to the system? Our demands are that there be free education for anyone, regardless of their immigration status also that they actually do something to publicize the changes when they finally do something about the situation, that they do some kind of multilingual public information campaign to make sure that people know about it, that also they have clear and strong policies around confidentiality so that we don't have situations like with this teenager where they're being turned over to Immigration Canada by some random employees of some school. There needs to be some strong policies, some kind of don't ask, don't tell, or some way that the school, it's every school doesn't need to know the details of someone's immigration status. It's just not at all necessary, and it's quite dangerous. We have at times that people who have been charged these fees unfairly should be repaid for them. I'm not sure if there's anything else that shows up in our list of demands. It needs to be free for people who don't have status, and it needs to be confidential. What kinds of reactions do you get to this work, particularly from folks who are not directly affected by the issue? It's been interesting. We've had, in a lot of ways, a surprising amount of support. Like, we've talked to talk radio shows that tend to be quite conservative, quite right-wing, quite reactionary in some of their politics around especially issues like race and social justice issues. They don't tend to be the people we think of as people who are likely to be our allies. But we've had some of these talk radio stations more or less be on our side and say, oh, yeah, you know, these kids should be able to go to school and things like that. So there's that kind of response out there, especially with most media and journalists, where even if they have quite harsh views of people who don't have status, they are usually willing to say, well, you know, these kids should be able to go to school. Or like, you know, they shouldn't be punished for what their parents do or something, which is not the kind of thing that I would say or that the collective likes to say, because we don't feel like their parents should be punished in harsh and severe ways for some situation where, you know, they didn't get refugee status and they feel like their life is in danger and they've made this difficult decision that they choose not to go back to where they're from. So we don't say that, oh, it's just the kids who are innocent. 
we don't want to play any games of who are the good immigrants and who are the bad immigrants or anything like that. But that can be some of the responses. If you read comments on these journalistic articles, you see people who go on the website and they comment and they say, oh, well, these people should all be deported or whatever, too. There's definitely that, but comments on websites don't really represent anyone who knows what that really means. But it has been challenging. We've had a fair bit of support, but lots of apathy to lots of indifference. You just see in general that there's a lot of people that even if they aren't willing to openly publicly disagree with you or openly publicly say, well, I don't really care if those kids go to school or something like that, that there's a level of difference from the political class, from some of the journalists, from lots of members of the public, where whether they're kids or not kids, that if they're people who don't have status, somehow it's okay that they're not really being treated like human beings. And that's really sad to see. What's coming up next for Education Across Borders? Well, these are interesting times. The Quebec Ombudsperson basically recommended last November that kids should have access to school and that there be legislative changes and not just tweaking with the minutiae of bureaucratic regulations or something. The government has responded privately to the report from the ombudsperson. They haven't publicly said what they're actually going to do or not going to do or considering or whatever. So we've been pushing them on that and they've been saying pretty much nothing. But it was kind of embarrassing for them last week because now you've got, you know, kids going back to school. Clearly, they haven't done much of anything. The problem is still there. And so we had quite a bit of attention from journalists to the situation. And so for the first time, the the Office of the Minister of Education actually said, we're going to make a legislative change and we're going to make it soon. And that's the first time they've said that publicly anyways. So that's significant. But we're far from convinced from our experience in 2013 and just generally knowing the way governments operate. It's not at all clear to what extent they really do want to solve this problem and stop hearing about it or whether they're going to tweak with things but not really do something that can really solve the problem for most families. We're in a bit of a moment of reevaluation where we made sure that we were out there and doing things for back to school time and getting in the papers and all that stuff. And now we need to sit down and reevaluate and say, okay, what's the next step? How do we keep this on people's radar? How do we keep pushing the Ministry of Education so that they hopefully actually solve the problem? One thing that I think is kind of interesting about talking to you about this, we're usually talking all about Quebec and talking to people in Quebec and we're talking about Quebec and, you know, it's Quebec, Quebec, Quebec. But this is a huge problem in other provinces. It's less of a problem in Ontario and apparently they've done something about it in BC. So maybe it's not such a big problem there, but there must be plenty of people in maybe Alberta, for example, or in, in other provinces who are without status, who are undocumented, and who are having this exact same problem. So I I think it's an issue that is so winnable. It is so possible to make political gains on this. And it's really sad that it's taken us so long in a place like Montreal or in Canada in general to solve this problem and to do something about it. You have been listening to my interview with Steve Baird, an organizer with Education Across Borders in Montreal. To learn more about their work in either French or English, go to collectifeducation.org. That's collectifeducation.org. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, 
or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.